Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. I'm Jeremy Bean. And joining me in a moment will be my co-host, Justin Schieber. And today we're going to bring to you what is perhaps one of the most high-profile interviews we've ever done on Reasonable Doubts. If you've listened to our show for any amount of time, you probably know that we are all huge Bart Ehrman fans. Ehrman is the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and is probably one of the best-known authorities on the New Testament and the history of early Christianity. When it comes to New Testament studies, Ehrman is somewhat of a rock star. He's the author of popular books such as Misquoting Jesus, God's Problem, and Forged. And for the entire hour, we are going to get a chance to interview him about his most recent New York Times bestseller, How Jesus Became God, The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee. Dr. Ehrman, thank you so much for joining us here on Reasonable Doubts. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, in your, your brand new book, How Jesus Became God, The Exaltation of a Jewish Preacher from Galilee, you give a kind of historical survey of how beliefs about Jesus have changed over the years, particularly within the early years of Christianity. I imagine that with a journey like yours, this book has been in the back of your mind for quite a while. And I'm curious, what was the motivation for sitting down and tackling this particular topic in a popular level book? This topic has been on my mind since graduate school. When I was a Ph.D. student at Princeton Theological Seminary, one of my main interests was the development of Christology, the development of uh, views of Christ in early Christianity, uh, which was a focus actually of one of my Ph.D. exams way back in the 80s. Uh, and so I've thought about uh, the issues and read, read the literature on the issues for many years. Mm-hmm. About eight years ago or so, I uh, thought I wanted to write a book uh, about this issue of development of Christology, but from a, a particular uh, uh, angle, which is, for me, the most important angle, which is how it is Christians eventually came to declare Jesus to be God. Uh, how, you know, how do you get from a Jewish preacher in Galilee who's crucified for, um, um, for insurrection against the state, how do you get from that to being the second member of the Trinity? And uh, so that's, that's what I wanted to write about. So people who believe in God nowadays have a fairly clean-cut view of the divine realm, right? That there exists a vast chasm between the almighty monotheistic God and us mere mortals, and that there's not much in between. In your book, you argue that in the ancient world, the theological landscape wasn't always so simple. That's right. Whether people were uh, pagans or Jews, virtually everybody understood that the divine realm was inhabited by a large number of beings, some that, who were more mighty and powerful than others. So some pagans and some Jews, of course, thought that there's one God who is the creator of all things, but under that God were other gods and other divine beings and other angels and archangels and principalities and powers. And if you're, if you're Jewish and if you're uh, pagan, there were other, other gods and other daimonia and other beings. And so the issue of how Jesus came to be thought of as God has to be put into that context because when people today say Jesus is God, they think God is only one thing, and so Jesus is that. But in the ancient world, people thought of gods as being lots of different kinds of things. And so when anybody in the ancient world says Jesus is God, you have to ask, well, in what sense is he God? Uh, because the divine realm was variegated. It wasn't just a monolith. You give three examples of how this might be. You, you say that in some sense there's, uh, there's gods who temporarily become human, others uh, where divine beings are born of a god and a mortal, and still others were uh, humans uh, who actually become divine because they have some uh, excellent characteristic of some sort. And you say that these are, uh, are also in Jewish traditions? This is not only in just the pagan world? To the surprise of a lot of people, uh, you find all three ways of uh, having divine men also within Judaism. Of course, in Judaism, even in the, in the Hebrew Bible, you have God becoming a human being for a while. And mm-hmm. so uh, God 
uh, I mean, right off the bat, God appears to Adam and Eve in the garden as God is walking through the garden in the cool of the evening. <laughs> and so he's, a, he's become, he's taken human shape uh, for a while. Uh, and the angel of the Lord uh, regularly appears in the Hebrew Bible as a, as a human being and is often mistaken as a hum, human being. So that, that sort of thing happens. Uh, less known to many readers of the Bible is the fact that you have divine beings who mate with uh, mortal beings. So that uh, in Genesis chapter 2, we're told that the sons of God looked down upon the daughters of men and saw that they were beautiful, and they came down and took wives for themselves, and their offspring then were the Nephilim, the giants mm, yeah. uh, of antiquity. And so these are divine beings, sons of God, uh, some kind of angelic beings who mate with, uh, with human beings. Uh, and then their offspring then are sort of half divine, half human. And even less known to uh, many readers of the Bible is the fact that sometimes human beings are uh, are called God, including the King of Israel, who yeah. sometimes is called is called God uh, in the Hebrew Bible. But outside of the Bible, there were Jewish thinkers who maintained that people like Enoch, who was taken up into heaven uh, without dying, that he had been made a divine being, right. uh, and so he had been exalted the to the level of divinity. Some of the psalms about King David speak of him as a son of God, too, almost as, a, as an adopted son. He even is said to have possessed certain powers as a result of that. Would that be considered a divine being as well? Or You know, I'm not saying that every Jew thought this, but it, or every Israelite thought this, but I am saying that there certainly were Jews historically who thought that the kings were uh, adopted to be God's son and had some level of uh, divinity ascribed to them, so much so that uh, the, the kings could be called the sons of God. And that wasn't necessarily meant just metaphorically. It was often understood to be literally that this person was a divine being. Yeah, but it would be very hard for a Christian to see that in the Old Testament because they're reading Jesus back into those passages instead of seeing them about a mortal like David. Uh, that might be right, but I'm not talking about you know how Christians interpret the Bible. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking about what the biblical authors themselves were saying and, and how Jews interpreted the Bible. So whether the Christians are right or wrong uh, doesn't really matter for my argument. What I'm, what I'm saying is that at the time of Jesus, there were Jews who understood the Bible this way. Now that we have a kind of context for the more complex view of the ancient world when it comes to the divine, using some of the tools that historians have available to them, what did Jesus actually think of himself? Did he really think of himself as God? And in what, in what sense did he mean that? Yeah, this is a chapter that I have in my book because it's obviously the key question. Mm -hmm. Because if Jesus talked about himself as God, then it'd be obvious why the Christians called him God, is because that's what he said. Right. Uh, and so I, uh, I investigate this, and uh, my conclusions are not particularly uh, controversial among scholars. Uh, scholars for hundreds of years have recognized that, in fact, Jesus, the historical Jesus himself, did not call himself God and did not think about himself as God. The historical Jesus was a preacher of the coming kingdom of God, who was telling people to repent in preparation for this appearance of the uh, appearance of the kingdom um, in in the gospels of course in the gospel of john jesus the last gospel to be written jesus does make claims for himself in the gospel of john i mean he says things like before abraham was i am mm -hmm. uh, and he says uh, i and the father are one and he says if you've seen me you've seen the father uh, the striking thing is that these claims to divinity are found only in our last gospel. They're not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and they're not found in the sources behind Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so one of the this isn't the this isn't my entire argument, but one of my arguments is that if Jesus really were going around calling himself God during his public ministry, it's hard to imagine that the early authors didn't didn't want to mention that part. Right. Uh, that would be the most important thing to say about him. Uh, the fact they don't say it almost certainly means they didn't know anything of the sort. In your book, you write, quote, The majority of biblical scholars for more than a century have argued that Jesus is best understood as an apocalyptic prophet. What did it mean to say that Jesus was an apocalypticist? And what are the most powerful arguments for thinking this? That's a book in itself. <laughs> this view was first popularized by Albert Schweitzer in 1906 in his book, uh, The Quest of the Historical Jesus. 
And after Schweitzer's day, it became the majority opinion in Europe and in the United States, and it still is the majority opinion, that Jesus is best understood as an apocalypticist, which means that he, like other uh, Jewish thinkers of his day, believed that this world that we live in now is controlled by forces of evil that are aligned against God, which is why there's so much pain, misery, and suffering in the world, hmm. but that God was soon going to intervene to overthrow the forces of evil and set up a good kingdom on earth in which there'd be no more pain or misery or suffering, uh, and that this was going to happen very soon uh, within his own generation. This is the basic view that uh, that historians have, the majority of historians have, have held, held sure. about Jesus. The evidence for it is that this is how Jesus is portrayed in our earliest sources. For example, the Gospel of Mark and in uh, the document that, that scholars have called Q, which is a source uh, that no longer exists, but which was uh, used by Matthew and Luke for their many of their sayings of Jesus. And so the, the apocalyptic character of Jesus' ministry is attested in widespread early sources, and so that's one reason, at least, for thinking that Jesus held these views. So it has very uh, early attestation. Extremely um, early and independent attestation. Okay, yeah. I always thought it was interesting that in the book of Mark that Jesus is preaching this gospel all the time, and yet he's keeping aspects of himself as a Messiah a secret from the public. So what's yes. the gospel about? It seems to be about the kingdom of heaven, this apocalypse. But his own identity, he tries to keep under wraps. Yeah, that's called the messianic secret, and is another issue that has been long debated among scholars since the beginning of the, 20, the beginning of the twentieth century. Why did Jesus say that he was the king of of Israel, or imply it when he clearly wasn't the actual king of Israel? <laughs> right. I think that all of Jesus' teachings uh, need to be put within his own apocalyptic context. And I think that there's no doubt that Jesus did consider himself to be the future king. Um, the reason I think there's no doubt about that is because that's why he was crucified. Uh, right. Jesus was not crucified for calling himself God, or for committing blasphemy, or for having arguments with the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus was executed, according to all of our accounts, because he was calling himself the king of the Jews. That's what happens at his trial before Pontius Pilate the governor who had ordered him crucified. And it's the charge that's put on the placard above his head when, when he gets crucified. It, this man was the king of the Jews. And so one has to ask, what does it mean exactly for Jesus to think he's the king of the Jews if, in fact, he's obviously not the king of the Jews? But if you put that in an apocalyptic context, it makes perfect sense. Jesus thought that very soon there was going to be a kingdom of God brought to earth, and he thought that those who followed his teachings would be the ones who entered into that kingdom. Moreover, he taught his 12 disciples that those 12 would be rulers in the future kingdom. Uh, this is a firmly attested saying of Jesus. The point is, if his followers, the 12, are going to be rulers in the kingdom, what's he going to be? Uh, I think that he must have thought that when the kingdom came, he himself would be appointed by God to be the king. And so in that apocalyptic sense, he thought he was the king of the Jews. When the Romans got wind of this, they weren't really interested in apocalyptic theology. Uh, they, they heard he was calling himself king, which was a political claim, and uh, that would have made him a rival king, uh, which means that he had committed an insurrection. It's too bad that he, didn't, that he didn't use a bit more nuance in his statements. Well, you know, the thing is, he didn't go around preaching this publicly. Right. At least he doesn't in the Gospels. But it, he appears to have told his disciples this, at least, and one of them appears to have spilled the beans. Yeah. You write that the first 20 years of, at least after Jesus' death, was some of the most theologically significant years um, when it comes to, you know, what his believers uh, believed about Jesus. What, what do we know about, the, about that time? What do, we, what do we think, or what, what, in your book, what do you argue that uh, people came to believe about Jesus after his death? Well, this is, yeah, you know, this is the really uh, frustrating thing that historians have always had to face, is that... It's, it's quite obvious that those first 20 years were extremely fruitful for the development of theological thinking among the earliest Christians. Mm -hmm. But we have no writings from the period. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have anybody writing during those 20 years, and so uh, it's very frustrating because we'd love to know exactly what's going on. Paul is our first writer. Uh, writing, he's writing before the Gospels were written. Uh, Paul begins writing around the year 49 or 50, so about 20 years after Jesus' death. 
And so we're handicapped because we don't have uh, any Christian writings from the period. What I argue in the book is that what we do have are quotations of traditions that were in circulation during those periods, uh, during that early period. We have quotations in the later writings, uh, quotations in Paul and quotations in the book of Acts, for example, that seem to be reproducing what Christians in the earlier period were saying. These are, these are quotations that I call pre-literary traditions, okay. meaning they existed as traditions before somebody wrote them down. And what I do in my book is I examine uh, a number of these pre-literary traditions that speak about Christ, and what's striking is they all have a kind of Christology that you could call an exaltation Christology. An exaltation Christology is the idea that a human is exalted up to the divine realm Mm -hmm. and becomes a divine being then. These fragments indicate that it was at his resurrection that Jesus was made the Son of God. Uh, So you get that, for example, in Acts chapter 13, verse 33. You get it in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and several other places. Do we have evidence that there were other theologies developing at that same time that that maybe disagreed with that? What I argue in the book is uh, actually not a new argument to me. It's It's a view that's been around for a long time that was put most succinctly by a very famous New Testament scholar named Raymond Brown, who was a uh, Roman Catholic priest who uh, taught at Union Theological Seminary in New York uh, and was one of the premier scholars of the New Testament the second half of the 20th century. Raymond Brown argued that you could trace a kind of backward movement of Christology, that the earliest Christians, like, you know, the followers of Jesus, some weeks after his death, thought that he had been exalted to heaven at his resurrection and had become the Son of God then. But as Christians thought about it a little more, they came to think that, uh, in fact, Jesus must have been the Son of God not just after his resurrection, but he must have been the Son of God during his entire public ministry. And so they started telling stories about how the beginning of his ministry is when he became the Son of God at his baptism, when he's baptized by John the Baptist, and God declares him to be the Son of God. As they thought about it more, they thought, well, actually, he must have been the Son of God for his entire life. <laughs> and so there developed traditions that he had been born of a virgin, that, that literally God was his father because the Spirit was the one who made Mary pregnant. And then as they thought about it more, they thought, well, actually, he must have been the Son of God not just for his life. He must have always been the Son <laughs> of God. And so they developed the idea then that he had existed before he was born uh, and that he was a God who came into the world. And that's the view, then, you get in the Gospel of John. So that if you line up our Gospels chronologically, you see this development of Christology through through the Gospels, and it's this development that probably is taking place before the Gospels are written, and sometime during those 20 years. Paul's writings precede the Gospels in absolutely, date, and yet absolutely. they have a very high Christology in them. That's, that's absolutely right, and so uh, I deal with that explicitly in the book uh, in order to show that this chronological sequencing of the Gospels can be a kind of heuristic tool for how it developed, mm-hmm. but, but the, the higher Christology was already in place during the first 20 years. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's not that that Christology is developing at a steady rate in every place uh, at the same rate at the same time. Um, Because Paul, our earliest witness, has already this idea that Christ was a pre-existent divine being. Now, Paul's Paul's view is different from the view of the Gospel of John in significant ways. Um, they, They don't have the same Christology, but Paul does have this higher Christology already early, which means that in those first 20 years, you have people believing all of these things at the same time. And, and as we know from Paul's own writings, that he, he even viewed himself as a bit of an outsider, that he had a personal track on this. Uh, well, Paul, yes. Paul, Paul claimed that his, you know, his revelation came directly from Jesus. But you not know, the he, earthly Jesus, not the Jesus who lived. No, not the earthly Jesus. Jesus appeared to him and, uh, and revealed to him. Although I think people sometimes misplay what's going on with Paul, because I think what Paul's saying Paul isn't saying that Jesus, when Jesus appeared to him, he's not saying that Jesus told him all of his theology. <laughs> I think what he's saying is yeah. that, that when he had this uh, this vision of Jesus is when he realized that, in fact, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that puts people into a right standing before God, that it's not the Jewish law. 
mm-hmm. that this is why he became the missionary to the Gentiles, is because of this revelation of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Not so much that Jesus revealed his entire theology to him. Jesus also often uses uh, the phrase, son of man, and, and in different different verses of the Gospels, this actually, there seems to be different interpretations of what this means. It can be a bit confusing. In your book, you argue that the historical Jesus was actually talking about somebody else, even when there are some passages in the Gospels, in the New Testament canon, that appear that he was talking about himself. How do scholars kind of sift through these seemingly contradictory sayings of Jesus to find a historical core? Well, it's really difficult, and there are very large books devoted to just this one question, uh, large, complicated books. <laughs> so it's, it's a little hard to summarize it, but the way it works is um, Jesus says, uh, Jesus uses the phrase Son of Man a lot, and he uses it uh, often to refer to himself mm-hmm. in the Gospels. And so he'll say something like, um, birds have nests and fox have lairs, but... Uh, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so he's referring to himself as not as being an itinerant. Or he'll say, um, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and be rejected by the scribes and elders and be crucified and on the third day be raised from the dead. So, you know, clearly he's talking about himself. Right, right. So you get those kinds of sayings. You get another kind of saying in the Gospels where Jesus is not clearly identifying himself. For example, when he says in Mark 8.38 that uh, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of that one the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes on the clouds of heaven in the presence of the holy angels. Now, unless you already thought that Jesus was the Son of Man, there's nothing in that saying that would, would make you think so. Right, In right. fact, it looks like he's talking about someone else. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that, that's the situation we have with the Son of Man saying. Some of them he's clearly talking about himself, and in others it's not so clear. In fact, there's nothing to make you think he is talking about himself. So scholars have long known that some of these sayings of the Son of Man are not sayings that Jesus actually said. And so which ones did he say and which ones did he not say? Right. So my view of this is that Christians who did understand that Jesus was the Son of Man uh, had him talk in ways in which he identified himself as the Son of Man, but Christians would never make up a saying in which Jesus appeared to be talking about someone else, because the Christians thought he was talking about himself. And so if there are sayings in which Jesus appears to be talking about someone else, those are not sayings that the Christians would have made up about him, which means those must be the ones that Jesus really said. Um, and so, if, if you follow that criterion, then when Jesus talks about the Son of Man, uh, and he's talking about someone else, those are the ones that are authentic, and it's striking that those authentic sayings of the Son of Man are always about the Son of Man who's coming in judgment on the earth right. as a cosmic judge sent from heaven, in fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And so I think those are the sayings that probably Jesus really said, and he was predicting that, that God was soon going to send a Savior of the earth who's going to destroy all the forces of evil and bring in his kingdom. Yeah, so then when, uh, when he suddenly dies a humiliating death, presumably his disciples reinterpret this and think, oh, well, he must be the Son of Man that's returning to bring judgment. He must be the one, so they kind of attribute it to him talking about himself. Is that kind of the, yeah. the thought here? Yeah, and so the deal is, is if the Son of Man is coming on the clouds of heaven in judgment on the earth, and and the Christians come to think that Jesus is up in heaven now with God, mm-hmm. they think, well, he's the Son of Man, and that that's exactly right. Then, then they start uh, talking about him as the Son of Man, and they put Son of Man sayings on his lips. Uh, the Gospels all report that Jesus was buried in a tomb, and that this tomb was found empty. In the book, you say that you've actually changed your mind on this and that you no longer think that we can trust these uh, reports as history. What, what kind of led you to change your mind on this issue? Let me say a couple things about that. The first thing to say is that even if somebody does think that there was an empty tomb, it's really interesting that in the Gospels, nobody comes to faith because of the empty tomb. You know, Christian apologists use the empty tomb as an argument that Jesus must have been raised from the dead. But the reality is that in... in the Gospels, the empty tomb doesn't tell anybody he's been raised from the dead. And for reasons you would, could pretty well imagine, I mean, if somebody dies and you put him in a tomb, and on the three days later you come back and the tomb is empty, 
your your first thought is not, oh, he's been exalted <laughs> to heaven. <laughs> I mean, right. Your first thought is somebody stole the body, yeah. or you know, or somebody moved the body, or hey, I'm at the wrong tomb. <laughs> <laughs> right. You don't you don't think he's been exalted to heaven? So, so the empty tomb doesn't doesn't bring about faith in in the gospels. So th- that's one important point. My view actually did change about uh, about I don't know, a year ago. Um, for years, I mean, forever, forever, I had I had assumed that the gospel reports were probably right that Joseph of Arimathea had buried the body in a known tomb, and on the third day the tomb was empty. So even after I had become an agnostic, I I thought that that was probably right, and then that then you just have to come up with some alternative explanation for why, for why there's an empty tomb if there was no resurrection. Mm-hmm. But doing my research for this book, I changed my mind about that and came to think that probably this empty tomb tradition is a later legend and that it's not historically accurate. Hmm. So you want me to want to know why yeah, I think yeah. that? <laughs> it's even it's even in in Mark we don't actually see the resurrected Christ at the at the end of the original ending of Mark but it's it's still there the empty tomb's still there yeah, so Joseph of Arimathea right. and all that the whole narrative. I'm surprised yeah, to hear you know, take You know people it. sometimes get this wrong about the gospel of Mark. Sometimes people will say there's no resurrection in the gospel of Mark. And right. that's absolutely wrong. Right. There isn't a, there is a resurrection in the gospel of Mark. What they're I mean, the women go to the tomb, the tomb's empty, and the man at the tomb tells them that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So there's absolutely a resurrection. What there's not in Mark are any appearances of Jesus after his death. Right. And it's those appearances that in the other Gospels convince people that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's the same thing with the Apostle Paul. Mm -hmm. Paul's our first author, as I was pointing out earlier, and he doesn't mention an empty tomb. Right, uh, and when he talks about why people came to believe Jesus was raised from the dead, it's entirely because they saw him alive afterwards. Hmm. You you talk about some of the reasons that you have to doubt the empty tomb, and you, and you kind of uh, talk about what you've discovered in your uh, when you've been looking into Roman crucifixion practices. Some years ago, John Dominic Cross and wrote this highly controversial book, uh, a, a biography of Jesus in which he argued that Jesus was not given a decent burial, but that he was eaten by dogs. Mm. <laughs> wow. And, and, you know, when that came out, I thought, this is, just, this is really too much. This is over the top. You've got to be kidding me. Jesus eaten by dogs? Come on. And I just thought it was completely ridiculous and spectacular, you know, sensationalist. When I was writing this book, I thought, you know, I, I really need to find out what Romans normally did with crucified victims. Mm-hmm. I was not inclined toward Crossan's view or anything. I just wanted to know what typically happened to crucified people. Mm-hmm. Well, we, the interesting thing is we don't have very many. We, we don't have any explicit descriptions of the of the act of crucifixion from any literary source. There's no literary source that tells us how they did it. Probably because everybody knew how they did it uh, because it was a common it was a common thing, and so nobody gave us a literary description of it. Right. What we do have are a number of references to the crucified victims. And I looked up every reference I could find in every uh, Roman source, and the persistent refrain is that when people were crucified, they were left on the cross as part of the punishment. Mm-hmm. Even after they died, they were, they were left on the cross for days, so their body would decompose on the cross, and eaten by scavengers, as it turns out, although uh, birds are mentioned more often than than dogs. Uh, But the point was that the punishment was not simply the slow, humiliating, uh, and tortuous death of crucifixion. The punishment also included the ravages wreaked on the body afterwards. Okay. Because everybody in the ancient world wanted a decent burial, and crucified victims were humiliated by not being allowed a decent burial, and uh, so the punishment uh, was supposed to extend beyond death. Part of the reason for that was uh, that crucifixion was meant to be a disincentive for crime. And so Romans wanted these bodies hanging on the crosses so people could see them, uh, these dead corpses being ravaged uh, on the crosses because nobody wants that to happen to their bodies, and so it was a disincentive. And so this this is the typical Roman practice for crucifixion. I'd sure think twice about stealing something or <laughs> breaking a law if I saw that. 
Well, you know, they have, the Romans had a very different understanding of, of punishment from our understanding. Today, if, you know, in a capital punishment case, if, if they're going to execute somebody, they try, you know, they obviously don't succeed, according oh, as we've yeah. seen in recent news, but they, yes. they try to do it as painlessly and as privately as possible. Right. And the Romans had the opposite idea, right. that if you, if you want to a stop spectacle. somebody from committing crimes, you just string them up in the public, uh, public square, and you torture them to death, and you leave them there for a few days, and then see how many people want to commit a crime. Right. Were there ever any exceptions to this? I mean, would people occasionally get a decent burial, or, or, is, that, or is that kind of the point here? Why would Jesus be the exception? Well, yeah, you'd have to ask why Jesus would be the exception. We, we, know, we know of two situations in which uh, very, very rare exceptions were made. One exception um, is not quite the same thing, but Josephus, uh, who's our uh, first-century Jewish historian, who is our source for a good deal of what was happening in first-century Palestine, he was, a, he was an aristocratic Jew with enormous connections. I mean, he ended up being, uh, being made a kind of court historian in the, in the court of uh, the emperor Vespasian. So, I mean, he was, he was extremely upper crust, upper, upper crust elite. Uh, at one point during the War of the Jews, in the se- around the year 70, uh, there was a massive crucifixion, and three of his uh, companions were being crucified, and he requested the general in charge of the crucifixions to take down these three mm. while being crucified to show mercy on them, and they took them down. And, and uh, one of them actually survived the crucifixion. So, um, so if somebody was very well connected, you could get a, you could get an exception. So not, uh, not uh, an itinerant preacher right. who is claiming to be the true king in Galilee. No, no, yeah. no, not for him. <laughs> right, <No>. exactly. <laughs> but, but you know, if you were, you know, if you were the richest man in, in yep. Judea <laughs> and the most powerful, then you know. The, the other exception that we know about is is an extremely rare case that is mentioned by Philo, the historian in Alexandria, Egypt. Philo says that that there were occasions when a crucified a person who had been killed by crucifixion would be taken off the cross in honor of the emperor on the emperor's birthday. If a person person happens to get crucified, you know, the day before the emperor's birthday, and then he's he's dead, and the emperor's birthday, then as a as a show of kind of mercy in order to honor the emperor, right. they would take the body down. Philo doesn't say that happened all the time. He doesn't say, you know, every, every you know, once a year this happens. It's just that he says on occasion that happens. Well, doesn't John record that, uh, though, again, it's the latest gospel, uh, doesn't John place this around Passover? And so could, could this, maybe they did re- remove Jesus' body in deference to those celebrating that holiday? No, no, the Passover is a Jewish holiday. Mm-hmm. Philo is referring to the right, Roman of emperor. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean he's not he's not referring he, he's not saying that any time there's a festival they take bodies down. He's referring specifically to uh in order to show that the Roman emperor is a merciful person on occasion, uh they will take a bo- yeah. they'll occasionally take a body down during during a birthday of the emperor. So it's not, you know, like if there's some kind of local celebration, the Romans are going to say, "Oh, you're celebrating, let's take the bodies down." Yeah, and that would seem like an unusual move for Pilate to You know, so once I once I saw that in fact the typical pro- procedure was to leave somebody on the cross and then the body would decompose somewhat, then they would throw him in a tomb and, you know, uh, presumably for the lower class people, they would just throw them in a common tomb. If they were, you know, if they were wealthy people, they might allow their families to bury them. Um, but but it was only some days after yeah. after crucifixion, and so the question is, if that's typically what happened with a crucified person, would Pontius Pilate have made exceptions to the rule? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so so my next step was to look at what we know about Pontius Pilate, and what we know about Pontius Pilate uh, suggests that he wouldn't have done anything like that. Uh, the only stories we have about Pontius Pilate show that he was absolutely ruthless and mean-spirited and didn't give a, give a toss about uh, Jewish sens- sensibilities, especially their, their, their religious sensibilities. Uh, so the stories we have about him in Josephus and the comments we have about him in Philo show that, uh, that in fact, he, he wasn't somebody who was kind-hearted toward the people he was ruling. 
I doubt if he ever made an exception, and I, I can't think of a single reason why he'd make an exception for Jesus in particular. I guess, couldn't someone argue that because of the Passover week, uh, you have you know, a, lot of the, a lot of the Jews coming to, the, to town, and you have a population swell to the point where it's very difficult to maintain order, perhaps, and if Jesus had a crowd of people following him, couldn't it be? Couldn't that maybe be a reason why they might make an exception just to kind of keep the peace in this very bloated population at the time? Um, I think if he was going to make an exception, what he would have done is not have him crucified while the crowds were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. I guess you're right. <laughs> be yeah. easier way <laughs> to avoid that. Yep. He's being crucified in public, and so I think you know if he was afraid of that, then he simply would have waited till the Passover was over, then crucified him. Sure, sure, sure. So uh, Craig Evans, one of the contributors to the response book uh, that came out, uh, I think in the same week as your book came out, but he argues that even uh, Roman justice outside the Jewish setting sometimes permitted the crucified to be taken down and buried. And, and he quotes a, uh, the Roman law summary in the Digesta, where uh-huh. it reads, uh, the bodies of those who are condemned to death should not be refused their relatives. And the divine Augustus in the 10th book of his life said that this rule had been observed. At present, the bodies of those who have been punished are only buried when this is when this has been requested and permission granted. Um, and sometimes it is not permitted, especially where persons have been convicted of high treason. And then he goes on to say, uh, the bodies of persons who have been par- who have been punished should be given to whoever requests them for the purpose of burial. I don't know when this when this quotation was written. Do you do you have an idea of when the digesta and is this relevant to the question of? Well, the digest is hundreds of years later. Oh, it is? Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's quoting, it, it allegedly is summarizing uh, policies from earlier times. Oh, okay. So um, there are several things to be said about that. One is the exceptions are not made in cases of high treason. Jesus yeah. is crucified for treason. He's crucified for calling himself king of the Jews. So he's not just a, if somebody was crucified for um, like a you know, crime or robbery or something yeah. like that, um, for stealing a loaf of bread, or you know, or for offending, uh, you know, publicly uh, slapping a public official or something, sure. then that wasn't high treason, and and then an exception could be made, and the exception could be made if a family member requested the body, and Jesus, of course, did not have a family member who would have had any access to Pilate. And we have no record of a family member requesting his. Right. So I don't so think this town. has any relevance to Jesus' case. Okay. Yeah. One of the general concerns you raise about the uh, the historicity of the uh, burial narrative, uh, one of the more interesting things I, I read in the book was uh, about the pre-Pauline creed in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 3 through 8, where um, you suggest that it, it appears to be a pre-Pauline tradition that when you cut out just verses 3 through 5, for example, um, you get two sections of four statements each, which kind of serve as perfect parallels to each other, except yeah. for the last line, which would suggest that, you know, if Paul knew about Joseph of Arimathea, he would have put that in there. Yeah. Um, this is one of, yeah, this is really interesting to me. Yeah, no, so uh, it's something, you know, a lot of people haven't, Noticed. In fact, uh, I don't recall ever. Uh, I mean, I, you know, there's tons of scholarship on this particular uh, on this particular passage, right? Um, because it is widely recognized that Paul is quoting here what I was calling earlier a uh, pre-Pauline tradition. Sure. But uh, and so scholars have worked on this thing for a long time. But um, what people haven't noticed is this parallel structure that I'm that uh, that I'm talking about. The way this thing works is it, Paul. For, it's this passage where it says Paul says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried. Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas. Right. That's that's the basic. But there, so that's eight. That's basically eight lines, and it divides in half. So the first half is about his dying, uh, which is for our sins in accordance with scriptures, and he's buried. So that's about his death. Mm-hmm. And the second part is he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas. So if you take those four lines of each of the two parts, the, fir- the first line of each part corresponds to the first line of the second part. So Christ died, Christ was raised. It was for our sins, it was on the third day. It was in accordance with the scriptures, it was in accordance with the scriptures. Mm-hmm. He was buried, and he appeared to Cephas. So, but what I point out is that every part 
of, of section one corresponds to something in section two. Right. Except section two has he appeared to Cephas. In other words, it isn't just that he appeared; he appeared to somebody. Right. Mm-hmm. So there, and that doesn't a have a name. parallel in the first mm-hmm. part, where it says he was buried. And the way to have made it parallel was he was buried by Joseph. Right. Hmm. Which you don't have. And so I think it shows that Paul must not have known about the burial tradition by Joseph. Hmm. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was really interesting. Moreover, you talk about in uh, you know, verses 5 through 8 of that same uh, of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, um, when, when he writes, uh, And he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, then after that he appeared to more than five hundred of, of the brothers and sisters, and at the same time most of, um, most of them who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he writes, he, happened, or he appeared to me as one untimely born. In your book you suggest that this last of all suggests that this is an exhaustive list, but that there's a mysterious component that's missing that would be there if Paul knew about the, the Ma- burial Mary and narrative. the women. Yeah, Mary and the women yeah you're missing there. the women here. Right. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Right. It does sound, yeah, when he says last of all, that does seem to like he's coming up with a comprehensive list. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is, he, he does list, he gets pretty detailed. He lists and it, everybody it doesn't there. match any of the other gospel lists either. I mean, it, of course, in the characters, but not in the order. Yeah, well, that's right. And so it's a very interesting thing because, so first he doesn't mention an empty tomb. Second, he doesn't mention Joseph when he would have, it seems like he would have if mm-hmm. he had known about it. And third, he seems to give a comprehensive list, which leads out the women who found the empty tomb. Right. <laughs> so I think all that together is pretty strong. That You know, Paul knew the brother of Jesus James, and he knew, Cephas, knew Peter, and he spent some time in Jerusalem. He and he's our first author, and he says nothing about this empty tomb. Right. And he was and in a position like he to didn't know. know anything about an empty tomb. Yeah, there's some that would argue that because the burial narratives were, uh, they started off, you know, in Mark with the women, uh, or not not the burial narratives, but the uh, the discovery of the empty tomb. That this is historical. Uh, one of the reasons for this is because women were the ones who discovered the empty tomb. You'll have, often hear Christian apologists pointing to this fact that you know women testimony was not really highly regarded in Jewish courts at the time. Um, what do you think of that argument? Is that of embarrassment or yeah? Does that does yeah. that hold any weight with you? Uh, well, you know, it used to. I, I used to think that that was a strong argument until I started thinking about it a bit more. I mean, I, I give a long uh, discussion of this in my book to mm-hmm. show why I don't think it's a very convincing argument. There are several things to be said. One is that um, you might ask who would be likely to find an empty tomb if there was an empty tomb. Right. Uh, so the, the motif that drives the empty tomb story is that these women are going there to anoint the body for burial. Um, in other words, uh, the, according to the story, Joseph was in a hurry, it was getting dark, he put him in the tomb, had to leave them there over the Sabbath, and so there wasn't a proper burial. Right. And so the women are going to prepare to give him a proper, decent burial. So, uh, well, that was women's work. So it makes sense that somebody would make up a story that it was the women who went to the tomb because right, it's women's right. work. I it mean, seems you don't like have the most men plausible. preparing. Yeah. So, so you've got that. And I asked the question, who, who would make up the idea that women found the tomb empty? Uh, well, I mean, you know, women might. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so so maybe, maybe the story originated with women. Um, but more than that, uh, I argue that our first account of this story is in the Gospel of Mark, and that if you analyze Mark's Gospel carefully, it's quite clear that Mark doesn't think that the men disciples ever understand who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. It's always outsiders who understand who Jesus is. And so it's not at all surprising in Mark's gospel that it would be outsiders, these women, mm. who first find the empty tomb. In other words, if, I, I'm not saying that Mark made up the idea that it was women who found the empty tomb, but, but suppose you thought that Mark did make up the idea that it was women. You could easily think of reasons why Mark would want to do that, yeah. given his narrative otherwise. Right. Uh, well, if it's possible to imagine why Mark would make up the women, then it's not hard to imagine why someone else would make up the women. And so I think this idea that it's specifically women shows that it must be historical is flat-out wrong. Uh, you can come up with all sorts of reasons why it's specifically women. And, and beyond that, the, the women, they flee the tomb 
uh, afraid. They don't they don't go tell anybody in the original ending of Mark. So it's still well, that's right. Fits. The disciples and Mark never do figure yeah. it out. It fits tightly <laughs> with that theme. They never even get told. <laughs> yeah, bringing it back to your the main thesis of your book, the idea that Jesus did not view himself as God. Simon Gathercole had an objection in uh, in the response book to yours where he says uh, that Jesus does do many things in that book. Maybe he doesn't explicitly call himself God, but he does certain activities that would have only been accepted from God, such as uh, Jesus seems to have the authority to forgive sins right. and uh, and other privileges that are unique to God. He even throws in the passage from uh, Matthew 11 and Luke 10 that no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus know, chooses who can know God, and, uh, and passages speaking of Jesus having his own elect. What do you think about those particular passages? Are those possible counters to your thesis? Right. So, um, for anybody who's interested, I had a two-hour debate with Simon Gathercole on a on an English uh, radio station. An unbelievable, uh, about a unbelievable. Month ago. That was excellent. Uh, yeah. it's, the program is called Unbelievable, and uh, it's a it was it's a Christian radio station, and uh, we we went back and forth for two hours, and it was a very cordial uh, discussion and sharing of views. Um, I. So I think there's a little bit of misunderstanding uh, here. Uh, I am not denying that Jesus is understood to be God by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke do understand Jesus to be God, but they understand him to be God in a different way from, say, Paul and right. and John. Right, right. Uh, so it's not surprising that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is portrayed with the divine characteristics because the authors think Jesus is divine. That's a separate question from the question of, did Jesus himself consider himself to be divine? Mm-hmm. That's not asking whether Luke wants to portray Jesus as a divine. It's a question of what the historical Jesus himself was all about. And so, for Gavicol to make his point, he has to argue that these passages go back to the historical Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the problem. It's one thing to say that uh, in Mark, Jesus has the power to forgive sins. It's another thing to say that the historical Jesus himself thought that he had the power to forgive sins. Now, now having said that, let me point out that that passage in Mark is very interesting because Jesus says that he's been given the authority to forgive sins on earth. Given, which, which, which makes it sound like it's not that him and God are two separate persons, at least God the ultimate. Right. Well, he, he does not have the inherent authority mm-hmm. as okay. a divine being. It's because God has given him the authority that he can forgive sin. Mm. So that's very different. And it's different in part because God also gave the authority to priests in the temple to proclaim forgiveness of sins. Yeah. Hmm. Just, like, um, just like Catholic priests today in the confessional can pronounce that somebody's sins are forgiven, that doesn't make the Catholic priest God. Right. It just means that the, the priest is acting under the authority of God. Even if they think they are at sometimes. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I also found others uh, questioning some of the methods, uh, such as using uh, the criterion of dissimilarity, where they were basically saying if, if you adopt that approach and you take the passages that are dissimilar to what the early church set, would have thought, as being the most authentic, then you're essentially begging the question, and, and whatever you get out of your historical Jesus is going to be one that contradicts Christian doctrine. Yeah, that's a complete misunderstanding of how the method works. Mm. And it's interesting that Michael Bird, who wrote the piece in the response book about um, uh, how God, in his book, How God Became Jesus, he wrote the response to whether Jesus called himself God, mm-hmm. and he called into question the use of the criterion of dissimilarity. And it all sounds very convincing until you start reading what he himself says <laughs> about uh, what he thinks Jesus actually said in the Gospels, and you see him invoking the criterion of dissimilarity. <laughs> yeah. And you wonder, well, why is that? Well, it's because if you don't use the criterion of dissimilarity, what are you going to use? 
Uh, and so it isn't just a question of bad-mouthing somebody's method. It's, it's a matter of coming up with a better method. Yeah. The criterion of dissimilarity was never designed to give you a complete picture of everything Jesus said and right. did. Right. And so when people object that it doesn't give you a complete picture, it's an irrelevant point because it's not meant to give you a complete picture. It's meant to give you some materials that you're certain Jesus must have said and done. Yeah. There are some traditions that you can be relatively certain about, and those are the ones that pass the criterion of dissimilarity. And then you start building from there. But it, so it, it's a way of starting so that you have something to build on. Yeah, yeah, excellent point. And and there does seem to be, uh, for me, sometimes the apologists seem to use these criteria in a in a cherry picking kind of way, like with the criterion of embarrassment. Plenty of scholars would love to use the embarrassment of the of the cross. Plenty of apologists, rather, the embarrassment of the cross, the humility of being crucified, as proof that you know this really happened to to Jesus. And yet, there are other cases where they don't want to see the criterion of embarrassment used, or they they think it's inadequate. Yes. No, that's right. I think, you know, it's very hard for these critics to be consistent because if they don't use these various criteria, they don't have what are, what are they going to use? And yeah. and they end up it is it is the fact they do use them. And so they shouldn't be critical of other people who use them. Hmm. Yeah. So here's a a fun little question. If you could go back in time and remove one verse from the New Testament canon, what would it be and why? <laughs> 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 I only get one? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, I would re- remove uh, the verse, well, it's a couple verses, in First Timothy that says that women uh, are to be, that women are to exercise no authority over mm. a man. Mm. They're to be silent and submissive. I think that verse has done more harm in uh, in our day Absolutely. than uh, just about any verse when it comes to um, uh, silencing and oppressing women in the Christian church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good answer. Good answer. By the way, just a real quick one. Uh, do you think Paul wrote that, or do you think that's pseudo-Pauline? I think it's pseudo-Pauline. Yeah. I, don't think there's, I don't think there's any way Paul wrote First Timothy. Yeah. Okay. Bart, this has been a fascinating conversation about your most recent book, How Jesus Became God. Where can our listeners subscribe to your blog? Yes, I hope they do. So uh, let me just say that my my blog is a uh, it is a membership subscription. People have to pay in order to join, but it is but well the, worth it. it. Well, the well, yeah. I, I post five or six times a week, a thousand words a post uh, on issues dealing with Jesus, the historical uh, early Christianity, uh, the New Testament, and so forth. The reason I charge for the blog is that uh, every penny of it goes to charities dealing with hunger and homelessness. Uh, and so I pay for the blog myself, the administrative costs, and then I donate everything I get um, to various charities. And people get five or six blogs a week, uh, postings a week on, really, you know, I answer questions, I deal with issues people are interested in. And yeah, so, you interact really uh, regularly. Just uh, Bart Ehrman blog. We'll, if you Google that, you'll find it. And I hope people can, can join up. Awesome. And I just want to thank you for being so accessible. Like, the, very rarely does a New Testament scholar reach kind of rock star status, and you've achieved it. But your interaction with your readers has been really inspiring. And just thank you so much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Well, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed this. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.